Good morning, guys. Good to have you with us. Um, it's good to see so many people out on a, on a Labor Day, which is cool. Uh, usually we can um, find a lot of other things to do on a weekend like this, uh, and this can find the back of the list. But um, praise God that we get to come out here at a place like this, on a day like this, um, and worship the King. And um, it's good to have you guys. I do have a brother here and a, and a, sister, a, a brother that I love a lot that uh, I don't get to see much from the Portland area. Uh, Gary and his, his wonderful wife Paige are here today with their friends. And so it's good to have you guys, man. It's good to look out there and, and see you guys here. So um, we are done with Galatians. You can clap if you want. It's been like six, six months. Um, which actually isn't bad for Galatians, trust me. Um, but now we're going into James. And um, I don't know if you know this, but that is a no-no uh, to go from a book like Galatians to a book like James. Because uh, many uh, a theologian and scholar over the centuries um, have, had a, um, have had trouble with how these two books are supposed to go together. And I'm just going to go ahead and show my hand right away and let you know that there is no problem, <laughs> that, that they agree with each other. Um, and so uh, we're going to do a little bit of the formalities first um, about the book of James and uh, just let you in on a few of the things that we need to know. And, and then we'll jump back right into it. So if you go to Hebrews in your New Testament and turn right, uh, you'll hit James. If you go to First Peter and turn left, then you'll run into James. It's right in there. So find that. And we're going to, by the grace of God, cover a, an entire four verses today. Okay. So um, let's go ahead and, and read the first four, four verses to start with. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First thing we have to do is we have to answer the question, who wrote this? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb, and I'll say that James wrote it. Uh, if we look at the first word there, uh, name, uh, it's James. The question then becomes, uh, which James? Uh, because there were a few James that were known, uh, fairly well known, uh, in the early church. Um, but without wasting a bunch of time getting bogged down on, on who this is, you guys, if you're curious, you can research that on your own. Most scholars believe this to be the James, meaning the brother of Jesus or the half-brother of Jesus. Um, one reason, I'll give you the main reason why, it's widely held that this is that James is because only that James would be able to write a letter like this that's authoritative and send it out into various locales to the Jews and only qualify it with the, with the name James. He, he was kind of the big James. Everyone knew who this James was without him needing to say son of so-and-so or James of Damascus. Uh, like he didn't need to qualify which James 
he was. Everybody knew which James was Jesus' brother. And so I, I know that's kind of cheap. That's all I'm going to give you on that. Like I said, if you want to research that more, go ahead. But we're going to go ahead and go with this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, that is writing this, this letter. Um, and if that's true, if this is the brother of Jesus writing this letter, there's a few th cool things that we need to take note of right off the bat. Okay? Number one is that he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus. That's interesting if they're brothers. He uses the word here, doulos, right? Which is uh, a slave. It, it means that he is bound in subjection to. That this person that he's bound in subjection to is his Lord. And that's interesting if this is his brother. Um, which actually brings us to the second cool thing. He refers to Jesus as his Lord. He's not just my brother, he's my Lord. James bows his knee. He regards his brothers, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as, as his. And, and this is kind of weird because you can imagine like a lot of you grew up with siblings, right? Like it, it's not always pretty. In the house, it was probably a little prettier in, in the house that Jesus grew up in. But I mean, you know, these guys were, um, you know, they probably had their moments. And, and there's good indicators, um, especially in the Gospels, that, that there were some questions going on in the mind of Jesus' siblings about him for a while. And so it's, it's, it's neat to see him come right out of the gate and refer to Jesus as his Lord. Uh, the third one that's kind of cool is that he never mentions once in this letter that he's the brother of Jesus. That's actually rad. Like, I, I don't know about you, but if, if that were me, like, I would take every opportunity to work that one over and, uh, and, and run with it. I would run that into the ground. Um, so, so like, uh, Hey, James, uh, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, his brother, you know what I mean? Um, I would take every opportunity to say, uh, by the way, did I mention like I'm the brother of Jesus? Like he doesn't do that. That's a pretty cool thing that he, that he doesn't do it. It actually tells us a lot about James and the character of James and the maturity of James at this point in his life, right? Now, who's James writing to? We find this uh, also in verse 1. We'll go out on a limb and say to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And um, if, if you know anything about, you know, language or recurring phrases in Scripture, uh, to the, tw the 12 tribes is, is very Jewish in nature. Uh, um, it's very Jewish. Uh, by this statement, I think we can safely assume that he's zeroing in primarily on Jewish Christians that are scattered abroad. And so you guys all know the story. If you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, Pentecost happens. The church is birthed. The gospel starts going forward. Every day, God's adding numbers to this church. He's doing a work, right? And then what happens? As the church grows and grows and grows, the authorities, not just the Roman authorities, 
that have come in, come in and, and taken over Jerusalem, but also the, the, the Jewish religious leaders that have nothing to do with Christ as their Messiah are all putting pressure on the church and persecution starts. And that pressure that comes upon the church does what? It pushes the church out. So there was a focus of gospel in this one area of the globe, which is cool and all, but it's cooler that the gospel does what Jesus told them it will do, right? When he ascended, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he just blows it out to the ends of the earth. We're actually seeing through that persecution of the church, the fulfillment, the beginnings of the fulfillment of the gospel going everywhere. And so you've got these people, like Jordan talked about when he went through uh, those first eight verses in Peter, that had a home. They were comfortable. It was their place. This is where they lived. This is where their family was. This is where they did business. This is where they were a part of culture and society, one that they understood that were suddenly thrust into cultures and people groups and places that were not their home, that were completely strange to them. James is talking to these people. He's talking to these people that were run out of their home and are now strangers, sojourners, not just in the sense of, of being for Christ, but in the sense physically of, of how they live and where they live. And so the, these guys are being challenged. Okay? The 12 tribes of the dispersion, he says here. However, we need to realize that there is really nothing in this letter, really nothing in this letter that is explicitly Jewish, content-wise, doctrinal-wise. James is bringing forth general Christian principles, general Christian precepts, general Christian ethics. Okay? Truths for all believers. He's crossing all lines. And, and that's why um, you and I can travel through this book today in the year 2020. And it's just as important. It's just as meaningful. It speaks just as loud and just as truthfully to us as it did to them. And I want you to know that if you're, if you're kind of new to church, you're new to this Jesus thing, you're new to this Bible thing, you might, you might think to yourself, why in the world do churches read these old letters? Like, why do they spend all their time <clears throat> going through these letters, letters that were written thousands of years ago to a people that were so far removed from? And the answer is because this book, these letters are not like other books and other letters. This is the timeless word of God to the human race. It supersedes history. It supersedes the headlines of the day. It transcends where people live and how they live. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is breathed out by God. And that's why we spend all of our time on these books. These are our lifeline. This is, this is, this is, this is how we, that's, this is how we are mainlined to God. This is how we hook up to him. There is life in the words that are contained in this book. And that's, that's why we love it so much. 
That's why we spend so much time in it. It, it. it means everything that we have this, that God has preserved this throughout the ages with us in mind. All right? Now, I want to take just a couple minutes to talk real quick about how this book should be read. And um, that may sound kind of funny, um, but like I mentioned earlier, there's been some people in, 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 uh, throughout history, some scholars and theologians that have had some, some issues with the book of James. James should be read in a gospel-centered light. The book of James is largely regarded as a, dare I say it, works-based book. And it's regarded as a works-based book because James puts the focus in large part as far as what he's talking about on us. This book seems to put the ball in our court so much so that if we do not assume a gospel foundation of Christ accomplishing everything needed for righteousness and salvation on our behalf, it can leave us with the impression that the Christian life is all about what we can do for him. And because we like to do things, you and I, we like to feel like we've earned something. It's not hard for us to look at this book in a way that is dangerous for us. We must have a certain hermeneutic. And some of you are going, who in the world is that? And it's not a dude. It's not a dude's first name and last name, hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a word that speaks to a method or a theory of interpretation. That's all. And whether you know it or not, whether you've ever heard that word or not, you use it in some way, in some form, when you read your Bible. <laughs> we all have a hermeneutic, okay? And the right hermeneutic for reading and studying the book of James is a gospel hermeneutic, okay? Just like we should have in every other book of the Bible that we read. It's no different. We must establish and assume in the book of James the biblical truth of justification by faith alone in Christ apart from works as pre-existing foundation to everything that James is going to be addressing here. If we don't, we're in trouble. Okay? James is primarily dealing more with hap what happens on the back end of salvation. We call that orthopraxy. It's very practical stuff. Okay? Now, the reason why people miss this in James is because James doesn't establish the gospel first in word, in his letter. Okay? But he knows it. It's assumed. Um, for instance, the book of Romans, very easy one. Book of Romans, if you guys are familiar with it, uh, there's what, 16 chapters maybe? <clears throat> God spends, or Paul spends the first, and God spends the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans establishing salvation, establishing how man is saved, which is by grace alone and Christ alone. 
Then, once he establishes that foundation, that platform, he shifts from chapter 11 to 12 and says, therefore, as a result of everything that's been built, every, on, the, on the result of everything that's been established on the person and work of Christ, live like this. Okay? Um, you'll, you'll see that as a, as a uh, basically common um, pattern in one form or another in most of the epistles. James doesn't do that. That's kind of why it looks so weird is he just comes in and he starts talking about Christian life, Christian ethics, orthopraxy. Okay? We cannot forget to assume that the gospel is assumed by James. It's there. We are saved. Everything we just went through in Galatians for six months, right, is that we are justified through faith in Christ apart from works. How then can we now come to this book and say we are justified in works apart from faith? We can't. And we're going to obviously stay tuned because we're going to get to some interesting sections of this book that people have struggled in. But we must have a hermeneutic as we read through this book of um, the gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone. Okay. All right. Now that the formalities are out of the way, let's spend the rest of our time this morning with James' first point of business with this scattered church. And we find that in verses 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's interesting where he starts here, okay? Right out of the gate. Um, in fact, I think I missed this. Uh, in, in verse 1, the last word is greetings, which actually means in the Greek, joy. It's like he's, it's like he's, um, um, he's, he's shouting to them, joy. And then he immediately starts in with, count it all joy when your life is a challenge. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm in the middle of it, of something really bad, something that, that I'm agonizing over and I'm having a hard time with, and someone walks up to me and said, just have joy, brother. Like, I, I just want to punch them in the throat. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that, it seems so insensitive. It doesn't seem like something that you should walk up to, a person who's going through it, and lead off with. And yet James does. Because there is something here to be joyful about. And this is something that I've been trying to learn all week. Because it's been a tough week. And it's amazing how God always knows what we need when we need it. And if I didn't have this verse this week, I don't know how I would have responded, but I don't think it would have been pretty. I needed to know that in the midst of various trials this week, there is joy to be had and there is joy to be found. And I know that I'm not the only one. I needed this word this week. It was so timely. 
he says to count it all joy when you meet various trials and, uh, of ver or various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What is steadfastness? It is endurance. It's patience. It literally means to remain under. To be steadfast is to remain under. Someone might say, patience, steadfastness, like, why do I need that stuff? Right? Here's why. Because if we don't have patience and endurance, we will do stupid things. Even as Christians. If we do not build patience and endurance in our faith, we will take matters into our own hands when they're not ours to take. We will pick up the slack for God. We may even be found thinking that we don't need God. I, I hate this. I, I hate this reality that we find here that through trials, God builds into us the reality that we need him. I, I hate that that's when I, I most know, I, I, I'm most convinced that I need God, is when I'm in a corner It is through trials when God stabilizes us in him. Trials build muscle, faith muscle for the Christian, trust muscle, dependence muscle. They build into us the necessity to patiently stay put under his umbrella of care. And not run, not move, not take matters into our own hands when things go bad. We have to shift gears here for a second because we cannot count our trials all joy if we think that God is scolding us in the trial. If we think that God is against us, it's really hard to have joy in that. If I think bad things happen to me equals God is mad at me, and good things happen to me equals God is pleased with me, then my starting point about God with my faith is wrong. And so is yours. And if my starting point is wrong, then my shot at having joy in trials is non-existent. It's just not going to happen. And this is our initial thought when things go bad, is it not? What did I do wrong? Why is God mad at me? Which I have had several times this week. Do you realize that the proof of your being a child of the Most High God is not found in how well things go for you, but in the belief and understanding that God is for us, even when everything goes to crap. Do we understand that when we feel and experience hardship and trial and pressure and opposition, it's actually because God is for us? You might say, why does God have to show his love for us that way? 
And the Bible would answer because that's what fathers that love their children do. They rebuke. They correct. They train those that they consider their own. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do we all know someone who did? His name is Jesus. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Praise God. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Amen? Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I am a dad. I have four children. And sometimes all it felt like I did was spank my kids. Like there's just seasons when I look back, particularly the oldest two. Right? Don't know why it works that way, but it did in our house. Like, there's times when I look back, and, it, and all, all it feels like was that they were coming into my bedroom for a spank. You know something that I never did? I never spanked anybody else's child. You know why? Because they weren't mine. Their parents had to go home and deal with them. This passage in Hebrews tells us that God loves us so much as his own that he deals with us in a way that only a real father would. That's what a loving father does. He challenges the things in the child that are contrary to that which he is trying to produce. Let me say that again. A real father, loving father, challenges the things in the child that are contrary to that which he is trying to produce. He opposes the immaturity in us to bring about maturity. He opposes the laziness in us to bring about growth. To bring us into right thinking. To produce in us a righteousness that resembles his perfect son. Why does he do that? Because he hates us? No, because he, because he loves us. When I was 13... I went on a youth group trip to Magic Mountain because we lived in Southern California, so we had radder youth group trips than you did. And um, I was like already a little punk, like in the church, um, just, I don't know, just stupid, rebellious. And uh, I remember seeing the shirt at Magic Mountain, and uh, so I took it, you know, like I stole it, like went to the bathroom, put it on. Um, 
I, that's just kind of what I did went about my day. Well, I got caught. I didn't know at the time that even then they had cameras everywhere and places like that. And I got busted and I spent the rest of the day in Magic Mountain jail um, while, while the rest of the kids had fun, you know. And um, the, uh, the youth leader was, he was pretty soft on me. Like, uh, it wasn't too bad. Um, and I just thought, okay, I kind of dodged a bullet with that one and, you know, uh, no, no real harm, no foul. Well, the following Sunday when we got to church, that youth leader, of course, had told the elders and the elders had told my dad. And we had just got to church that morning. And my dad walked up to me. And I could tell by the look on his face that I was going to die that day. I, 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 was, I was dead. And uh, my dad said, let's go. And me and him went out to the car. We got in the car. Um, it was about a half hour drive from the church we were going to to where we lived. And um, he said he didn't say a word, just smoke coming out of his nostrils, you know. And I'm just thinking of all like the worst case, like, how's he going to do it? You know what I mean? Where's he, how's he going to do it? And where's he going to where's he going to bury me? Um, like, that's all I could. I was like so frightened. And we get home and we go upstairs and he takes off his belt and he says, come here. And he lays me down across his legs and he lets go. He lets loose on that thing. He didn't hold back and it hurt. And, and I'm bawling at this point, partially because it hurts, but partially because I'm just scared like this dude's lost his mind. He's not going to stop. And suddenly... It stops. And my dad reaches down and he grabs me. And he pulls me into his chest. And he starts bawling. Harder than I was. We, we changed places. I stopped crying. And he began to. See... I didn't know it then, but now that I've been a dad for a while, I get it. My dad was willing to do things that hurt him in order to heal me. He was willing to do things that hurt him to heal me. This isn't what we see in Jesus, isn't it? That he, would, that he would love you and I so much that he would send his only begotten son who knew no sin to become sin and bear it on our behalf. Do you, do you realize how much that hurt the father? But he, but he did it to heal you and me. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. This is what Hebrews 12 that I just read is, is really talking about, and, and that's the correlation it's making. What, what the Father experienced through what the Son went through and endured, um, and what we have to go through and endured to be conformed to the image of that son.
It is for benefit that my dad corrected me, not harm. You see, every hurtful and uncomfortable thing that God does and allows towards us is not for harm. It is for good. Please listen to this, please, because this is extremely important. What God knows is good and what we think is good are two different things. Do you guys understand that? They're two different things. Romans 8.28, we all have it on our refrigerator. We all love to pop that one out, right? Because it makes us feel good. But I'm afraid that a lot of times our interpretation of it is probably a little backwards, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? It's saying that God is committed to performing that which he thinks is good, not what we think is good for our ultimate good. In other words, God is for us, no matter what it feels like, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Do you believe that? And this is why when various trials come upon us, Christian, we can count it all joy. And if we do that, then we will let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, we won't cheat the blessing. We won't cheat the opportunity. We won't take a shortcut through the trial, right? We won't look for an escape hatch in the trial. The joy that our heavenly dad is producing something in us that far outweighs the trial is what will keep us in the game, soaking it up, soaking in the full effect of each blessing in that trial. It's been a hard season for me and my wife, like I mentioned earlier. It's absolutely no mistake that this is my text this week. And like I said earlier, if it wasn't for, for me meditating on this for the last eight or nine days, I would be a wreck right now. It has, it has once again stabilized me and secured me underneath the only thing that knows what's best for me. God knows what he's doing. And I have somehow, even though we have lost sleep, and we have been depressed, and we have been angry, and we have been confused, have somehow been able to find some kind of joy in the midst of it. And it's because if, if this is right, if my Bible's right, it means that God regards my state. He is tending to my trouble. And he is creating something bigger and better in me that I desperately need. And I love that God is mindful of me. Brothers and sisters, with Christ, we can go through all things well. We can even suffer well because we have the perfect blueprint 
in our Lord and Savior. And we have the full confidence and assurance that as children of God, God is performing surgery on us. Something that will stretch into eternity, that will, that will far outlive this, this little thing that we call life right now. And I am so overjoyed to know that God, the most high God regards me as his own. Are you? I can't imagine what these guys were going through that James is writing to. Like I said, they're in a foreign place. They're in a foreign land. They're around foreign people. They're in homes that aren't theirs. I mean, everything has been flipped upside down. But James wants them to know that they can take joy in that trial. Because God is with them and he is producing something eternal in them. God, thank you. Not only that you go through the storms with us, but, but thank you that on, on even just a small, minute level, you allow us to share in the sufferings of our Lord and our King. That you count us worthy enough to experience the smallest bits of that. I thank you, God, that you do not leave us in the condition and the state that you found us, but that you are committed to completing the work that you've began in us. Though it may be painful, thank you for your faithfulness. Help us all to know and understand and believe better than ever before that, that when that happens, it means that you love us, that you're for us. So much so that you're doing something in us. All to your glory. God, help us to suffer well. Teach us how to do that, God. Give us supernatural strength, the ability to look up and to be stabilized, steadfast in the midst of our trials when they come. Because that's when the world starts asking questions when they see that, God. So help us to be those different kind of people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, man.